Welcome to the Wellness Within podcast. We are a nonprofit wellness center for patients, survivors, caregivers, and families affected by the trauma of cancer. We provide a wide range of services that enhance an individual's ability to experience quality of life. And we believe that everyone should have access to our programs and conversations, which are offered freely to ensure that no one is ever denied the support they need. If you find inspiration in what we share, we invite you to consider supporting Wellness Within through a donation. Your generosity enables us to continue offering these valuable resources to our community. To make a donation and contribute to the well-being of those facing cancer, please visit our website at wellnesswithin.org or click the link in the episode description. Your support makes a difference. So thank you for being a vital part of our mission. Together, we empower whole person well-being, bridging gaps, and reconnecting to what is most meaningful. To be able to be there and really hold her as a human being, who's not just a daughter of someone who's dying, but a full person to acknowledge that. I would never have thought that if I had not been a patient myself. Welcome to Wellness Within. We would like to thank Koinonia Family Services, Consolidated Communications, and Merchants Bank of Commerce, who in part sponsor this podcast. Join us for relaxing meditations and enlivening conversations about topics that support wellness in the presence of cancer. To access our class schedule, to make a donation, or to sign up for our newsletter, please visit wellnesswithin.org. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Within podcast. This is Stevie Hanicle, and today we are honored to be joined by Teresa Brown. Teresa is a nurse and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Shift, and has been a contributor to the New York Times. Her writings appear in CNN.com and in the American Journal of Nursing, the Journal of American Medical Association, and more. She lectures nationally and internationally on issues relating to nursing, healthcare, and end of life. She has a new memoir, Healing, When a Nurse Becomes a Patient. Teresa tells her personal story and presents an honest and rare look at struggling with cancer while navigating the maze of the American healthcare. She does this through her unique perspective of being both a patient and a practitioner. We are so excited to have you here with us, Teresa. Thank you and welcome. Oh, thank you. It sounds like you work at such a great place. It provides all that wraparound care that every cancer patient needs. So I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Well, to start our conversation, will you share a little bit more about your journey that led you to nursing and then what ultimately led you to writing this new book of yours? Yeah. So I have a PhD in English. My dad was a professor and as a kid, I I saw him and I thought it just looked like a great job. Like you get to you know, mold young minds and live in the world of ideas and books. And, and I love all that stuff. But then I became a professor myself. And well, my dad's dream job was not exactly my dream job. <laughs> um, I liked it, but it didn't have that charge I wanted from a job. So then I'm trying to decide, okay, well, now what do I want to be when I grow up? after spending six years getting a PhD and I became a mom and it was really being a mom put me in touch with this whole other part of myself that was caring and 
I say I fell in love with the mess of life, like mm. fatigue and diapers and feedings, but love and joy and all of that mixed together. And a friend who's a nurse told me, essentially, you could become a nurse. And I had never thought about it. Um, and it, it turns out that, yeah, I could become a nurse. So, mm. so I did, in fact. <laughs> then I, I worked in oncology. Then I worked in home hospice, got diagnosed with breast cancer in fall of 2017, and discovered, first of all, that a cancer diagnosis is absolutely terrifying which I thought I knew because I'd taken care of so many cancer patients, but feeling it and being it about you is so different. So that gave me a window on my patients and their reality that I did not have. And also I just was struck over and over again about how the healthcare system is not caring. It's not compassionate. It's not looking out for people. And I did not understand as a nurse how terrible that is for patients, because I thought, well, we all, we're so caring, the people I work with, we want the best for patients, we make up for all these glitches. We don't, I learned when I was a patient myself. And that's what really drove me to write the book, because I want patients to see themselves, I want clinicians to see patients better. But what I really want is administrators and CEOs to say, wow, we are good at clinical miracles. We are not good at healing people's souls, the person. Mm -hmm. We just don't worry about that the way that we need to. Wow. Wow. Touching more on that word healing, you just said too. And this is in the title of your book, Healing When a Nurse Becomes a Patient. So I'm curious you know, about the meaning and importance of that word to you. I use the word healing in distinction to fixing. Mm -hmm. We're really good at fixing people, right? Like my cancer was very easily treated, which was a good thing. All the care I got was clinically excellent. I don't have complaints about that at all. Yeah. But healing means explaining to patients what's going on. So for example, I had lumpectomy, then radiation, and then tamoxifen. And I had a lot of problems with tamoxifen and found mm -hmm. it a very difficult drug. And actually 50% of women who are supposed to take it for five years, which is the standard dose, don't. And I am now one of those women. And my medical oncologist never really seemed to be paying attention when I said, oh, it makes me really tired. I have brain fog. I feel confused. So I wasn't healed in that instance. And now I'm not on this drug. Mm -hmm. I may, it's com a complicated story, but I may start a different drug. So I feel like I lost about three and a half years of my life in a way to tamoxifen, even though I worked, I wrote this book, you know, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't like I was in a coma, right. but the quality of my life and my personhood were really, really diminished. Yeah. So to me, that's not healing. If someone just says, take this drug for five years, doesn't matter what problems you have with it. This is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And we need to do better for so many of our patients like this. And I give examples in the book of patients who chemotherapy had caused such nerve damage in their feet that it was hard for them to walk or Patients who we sent home with a triple lumen catheter, you know, attached to their chest and hanging down. And 
I never thought about that. It was always, well, we're saving your life. This is what we have to do to treat you. This is the best thing. And it is the best thing in terms of their mortality, right? But it also matters a lot. And I don't think it's that hard to have more of that kind of empathy for patients. That is so well said. And a quote that comes to mind hearing you talk about that right now, Teresa, is this quote that you said, it was modern healthcare saved me, saved my life, but Teresa, the person got lost. That struck me so strongly. And I feel like many people will probably be able to relate to that, hearing that quote, reading your book and hearing you you talk about what you just said right now too, that healing can be different than just being fixed. Right. And and there's such a lack of trust in a lot of ways with our healthcare. I mean, we, we really saw this to get into a can of worms with the COVID pandemic and arguments about vaccines, but you see it in all kinds of ways. People are very suspicious and rightly so about, am I going to get some sort of hidden cost that all of a sudden my visit to the emergency room cost me $5,000 or gosh, I thought I had good insurance, but it turns out I don't. Or, oh, I am not able to afford insurance and I also don't qualify for Medicaid. So how am I even going to get any health care at all? So there's so many different kinds of levels of mistrust that have to go around money, that have to do with being suspicious of authority. And to my mind, to some degree, these are all part of the same problem that the system is really good at making money. You know, a few decades ago, there were no healthcare companies on the Fortune 500 list. Now there are lots of them. So we've created this system. It's great at making money in a lot of ways is great at fixing people. Although there are also a lot of quite serious mistakes that get made every year. And so this race toward revenue is leaving people behind and, and not just patients, but we saw this during COVID clinicians also, nurses are quitting, physicians are committing suicide. It's a really, really hard time to be a clinician or a patient. And there have been so many books written about our healthcare system, what's wrong with it. Great books, a lot of them, they don't make a difference. So <laughs> I'm hoping that this very personal book at this moment, when we're trying to come out of a pandemic, that people will think, let's have a reset. Let's have a reorientation of how we treat people in our healthcare system. In your book, it really articulates the challenges and frustrations you experienced as a patient in today's healthcare system. And for example, you really captured the feeling of how certain communication or lack of communication from radiologists, physicians, nurses, and so on can really have a huge impact on patients and their families. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that need for compassionate care and why it's really important that the healthcare system make improvements in that direction. Yeah. So an example I talk about in the book is I had an ultrasound that went with my mammogram where they saw the mass, but then everyone listening probably knows this, but you have to actually get a sample of tissue to definitively get diagnosed with cancer. So sample of tissue means, you know, they have to take something out of your body and then look at it at the cellular level. So I had to have two biopsies and after they saw the mass, they said, you won't leave today without an appointment. And I thought, 
great. You know, I, I'd been crying. I'd been parked in the hallway while I was crying. I cried all through the another, the second mammogram that they needed, but all right, I'm going to get what I need. I'm going to get an appointment. I went to sit down, sit down. No one came. No one came. Finally, someone came by and said, oh, she leaves at three. You just missed her. And I became violently angry. I did not become violent, but inside my head, I was furious. And, you know, as a nurse, I probably would have seen that as, oh, that's terrible. But, you know, that person only has to wait overnight. They can call tomorrow morning. But as a patient, that was this huge moment where my trust just got completely broken, made me skeptical, made me going along more and more difficult in terms of not believing what people were saying to me and feeling like, why am I being expected to put up with this? So a tone gets set, a tone of either we're looking out for you or nah, we don't really care about you that much. And the really scary thing that I thought about only later is what if I weren't me? What if I were a different kind of person who felt like, you know what? I don't really think I have cancer. I'm not going to call back or felt like, well, if it's not important to them, it's not important to me. Then I become one of those people, quote unquote, lost to follow up. And maybe I come back a year later for my next mammogram and my tumor is a lot bigger and harder to take care of. So then all of a sudden, we've increased the risk to me. We've increased the cost of my care. We've increased the demand I'm going to put on the system all because they only have one person who can do this scheduling. And that person leaves at three o'clock, which I totally don't understand. And that's just it. If that person's gone, you're sunk. You know, it seems so simple and like, oh, it's just an administrative thing, but it wouldn't take that much work to say, have someone else who can also do the scheduling. You know, they do mammograms all through the evening. What if someone there needs a biopsy to be scheduled? How can you not provide that to people and say to them, women in this case, but it could be anyone with any kind of cancer diagnosis or any kind of serious diagnosis. How can you not say to them, we are looking out for you. This is our job to manage your care, not for you to put all the pieces together by yourself. Absolutely. And I know there are so many passionate nurses like yourself too, that are out there trying desperately to do what you're talking about right there, you know, to provide that quality of compassionate, empathetic care. Yeah. And I give the example of radiation oncology, which most people don't think of as a warm and fuzzy place, but (laughs) it was actually the place where I felt the most comfortable. And I really did feel cared for. And it was very simple things like they showed me a video of what the treatment would be like. They talked through all the expectations with me. They were going to give me aloe vera gel to take care of my skin, but I'm allergic to it. And then they were so apologetic that they couldn't give me aquaphor lotion and I would have to buy it myself. So instead of it feeling like DIY cancer care, do it yourself, mm-hmm. they had a program and a plan and a system. And I went there five days a week for four weeks. And every single time the texts were, Hey, Teresa, how you doing? And I saw them with other patients and they were the same. Every person got treated as an individual, you know, and it doesn't take any longer to say, Hey, how you doing? As to just say, okay, looking at a clipboard, lie down there. But there has to be 
leadership directing that. There has to be a system that encourages and values that. It's not complicated. It doesn't have to be expensive, but it does have to be prioritized. Mm. And so how did your diagnosis and experience influence the way you work now as a, as a nurse? I am able to see patients so much better. So for example, one of the chapters is called Two Afternoons in Hospice. And I talk about taking care of a patient who's dying in his adult daughter's house. And he was very stable as long as he had good pain medication, didn't need a lot from me clinically, but it was spring. He was in a small bedroom. There were two chairs right next to each other, sitting in front of a window, looking at the bed. And I was done with what I needed to do for him, which did not take that long. Um, His daughter sat down and I sat down and she and I chatted and we talked about her kids and why they bought the house they did and her husband's job. And she asked me about my kids. And I did that two afternoons in a row. And before my diagnosis, I would have thought that was a complete waste of time. But afterwards, I thought it was some of the best work that I did to be able to be there and really hold her as a human being, who's not just a daughter of someone who's dying, but a full person to acknowledge that. And I would never have thought that if I had not been a patient myself. And I am not sure a lot of clinicians really think about that. And especially as, as care has gotten more and more technologically sophisticated and precise people have to remember so much more, right? And we're parsing information about people and their diseases into smaller and smaller bits. And I acknowledge it is very hard to keep up, but we are keeping up with the billing and the profit making. And so, as I said before, seeing patients as human beings also needs to be prioritized. And I I think we can all do that. The harder thing about coming back after my diagnosis is seeing the glitches in the system was so painful to me. And I'd always told myself, well, if I give 120%, that makes up for the 50% being given by the system. And then, you know, in healing, I say, you know, a middle schooler could tell you that math does not work out. Um, And that was a very painful thing to see, but I I want people to believe and know that I wrote this book, not just to tell my story, but because I really do want change for all of us, all patients, not just cancer patients, any kind of patients deserve to be treated as human beings who live in a human context. There's people who care about us and we need our healthcare system to care. It's in the word, right? Mm Treat the whole person. Absolutely. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I was curious too, if you wouldn't mind sharing, have there been any things in your healing process that you have found particularly helpful that might be helpful for somebody that might be listening, you know, or such as have there been certain practices that you've started that have helped? Yeah, I was always someone who worked out, but I made a commitment to continue to work out all during my treatment. I rode my bike three miles to my radiation treatments and then three miles home in Pittsburgh, which is a a hilly city. (laughs) Um, And just this past November, my husband and I with a couple we're friends with 
hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and back up. Mm. And we trained for that. And that was huge. That was the first moment in my life when I got to the top of the Grand Canyon that I felt like, okay, I'm not just a patient anymore. Mm. I felt like I had switched back to being a human being. And I realized also that working out, hiking, I also really love swimming, biking. It's really a way to take back your body. And cancer is, when it comes right down to it, your body has messed up, right? Some cell that was supposed to stop dividing did not get that message. And it's just been dividing like crazy and taking up resources. And it feels like a betrayal. It did to me at least very much so. So working out, staying healthy really felt like a way of saying, no, this is my body. I had a disease. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not my whole body that that's against me. And I can be that whole person again. Yes. Yes. You found that empowerment in that. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would also, this isn't something I did, but I guess something I was able to let happen is just so many people were kind to me, long-term friends, people I didn't even know that well. It was amazing the level of kindness I felt from so many other people. And I could take that in. I didn't feel like, well, I'm the nurse. I'm the one who takes care of other people. So that's really important. If people want to help you, please let them because you need that. And why not? you know, you'll pay it back someday with someone else. I love that. Yeah. I've met many people that have that hard time accepting the help, but so that message is, is really a beautiful message to, to allow help, right? Allow it. Do you have any final thoughts or hopes that people might take away from reading your book or listening to this, to this episode today as we wrap up? Yeah, there's a, there's a sort of trajectory I trace in the book between me being what I call the easy patient which is also what we in healthcare call people who sort of go along to get along. Uh, they do what they're told. They don't make a fuss about the timing. And I tried to be that person because I felt like those people get the best care. But after a while, that didn't work for me. And I realized I am what we call the difficult patient, which some people would call the empowered patient. <laughs> hate to say I've used these labels, but I know that I have. But suddenly, yeah, I realize I'm the person who says, why do I have to wait on this? I don't understand what you're telling me. Could you please explain that? I am not going to go back on tamoxifen. So what else can we do? And that is the message I want patients and their caregivers to take away. Be the difficult patient, which does not mean that you're abusive impolite, uncivil. It means that you're asking completely appropriate adult questions that the system is not good at accommodating. So I like to continue calling it the difficult patient (laughs) because I think it says, it's like a reminder of this is hard and you're going to feel like it's hard when you're doing it, but do it anyway. And don't let anyone tell you that you don't really need to understand your own care or you can just wait two weeks to get the results of your biopsy. None of that is good enough. And I'm hoping for this bottom up revolution where 
people will ask appropriately for things that they need to understand what's going on with their body and their treatment and the system will have to adjust. Wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much for this wonderful conversation today. Where can people find your book and more information about you? Great question. They can find (laughs) my book anywhere books are sold. If you would like to have a signed copy from me, you can order from my local independent bookstore, cityofasylum.com. And you can also find out more about me at teresabrownrn.com. You can also find links to bookstores, City of Asylum bookstore there. Um, You can find out about signing up for my newsletter. And I'm also available to Zoom into book groups, reading, healing. I would really love to do that. Or just a group of patients who feel like, I want to talk to this woman. We want to share our stories with her. I I would love to do that. So come find me, TeresaBrownRN.com. Perfect. And to our listeners, I'll go ahead and get those links and information posted in the show notes below. So look for those there. And thank you for, for joining us today. And thank you to all the amazing nurses, including Teresa, that are doing such amazing work in the world. And take good care. And also, please take a moment to rate, review, and share our podcast. Doing so will help us reach more people who can greatly benefit from our services. And make sure to subscribe as we have more guided meditations and conversations with experts coming your way. Take good care, everyone.